sermon series that we've been in for the last few weeks called Looking at the Cross. And as I've been saying, there's two, um, two big implications to that word looking. We've been taking different looks at the cross and what Jesus has accomplished on the cross for us, but we also are doing so in effort to continue to gaze at the cross in all of life so that all of our life might be spent looking at the cross so that we might be cross-centered people. And we now are in this final time are going to get to celebrate the victory of the cross, the victory of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. We're going to look at a passage in the book of Colossians. So if you've got a Bible, you can open it up to Colossians. It's also printed in your bulletin. We're in chapter 2, and I'm going to read you verses 13 through 15. Really, I would recommend you go and just read chapter 2 of Colossians this afternoon. There's so much of what we've been talking about um, over the last few weeks of what Jesus has done on the cross that's encapsulated in a lot of these verses. So you can even you might even hear some of them in what, what I'm talking about right now or what I'm about to read. Here's verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your word. We know that it is active that it is sharp like a double-edged sword. And we ask now, Lord, that even when it's a little bit painful, that it would pierce our hearts, that you would open our ears that we might hear what you have to say. And more so, Lord, that we might also see the victory that you have won and won for us and that we might come and kneel before you, our King. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for promising to be with us this morning. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this, uh, this time of the year, March Madness, is a time where we kind of get excited. I get excited about watching games a lot. I don't know if you've been following the NCAA tournament, but it's lots of fun. Any, any Sister Jean fans out there that have been excited about Loyola? Yeah, pretty fun. So it's exciting to watch. It's especially exciting if you've got a dog in the fight, maybe. Tech fans out there, you got a team still in it, still playing. So that's fun. Uh, it's also my favorite time of the football season. I know that sounds funny. Spring football is what's going on now, which means it's practice. And um, pretty soon, in the next couple of weeks, the University of Texas will hold their annual spring football game. And I will undoubtedly drive to Austin, and I will go into the stadium with thousands of other people who have driven from all around, and I will sit in the stadium, and I will watch the University of Texas play the University of Texas. They will literally scrimmage, they will practice, and I will be there to watch it. That's pretty absurd, isn't it? Um, Here's the reason why I get super excited, I think, about watching a spring game. Is that there is a really, really strong chance that we will win. I don't put anything past Texas football these days, so it's not a 100% chance, but it's a really good chance that, that Texas is going to win that game. And there's something about when your team is winning is that you feel like you're winning, right? You're associated with them, so it feels good when your team is winning. You kind of get on this high like you have won as well. We really live in a culture that's in a lot of ways pretty obsessed with winning. 
Now, whether that's sports or other activities, we like not only the teams that we follow to win, but we want to feel like we are really winning as well, like we are winning in life somehow. Now, if you are on social media at all and you do a search with the hashtag winning life, you will come up with some interesting things. In fact, I did this this week. I just searched for hashtag winning life. And the first thing that I found on Instagram was this this person. This man, I suppose, uh, who's his name, like the, the whole, his whole like Instagram name was Winning Life. These are the things that I found on the first page of his, uh, of his Instagram feed. Here's the first picture that we have of what Winning Life looks like. It's a really nice house. A big house with a nice looking pool. You're winning at life if you've got a house like this. Next, we see that parked in the driveway, there is a really nice car. A Ferrari, in case you didn't know it was a Ferrari, um, it's on the license plate, 4RE. Yeah, I thought that was clever. So um, so you're winning life, you know, if you've got a Ferrari in the driveway. Um, next, you know, this one is, is kind of subtle. I'm not sure if you got this one, um, but it's a big old load of cash, right? So there's an indication that you're winning life if you got a lot of cash. Next, we see that there's a connection actually between what we do and if we're winning life and having the trappings of it, right? This guy says, I don't have a 9 to 5, I have a 24-7. The implication being that if I work my fingers to the bone all the time, I can have the life of luxury that I want, where I get to sit back in a nice leather chair and have a nice drink. The next one is actually connects it a little bit more easily. Work until your bank account looks like a phone number. Work yourself to the bone, work as hard as you possibly can, so that you might get the things in your life that make you feel like you have won. This other one um, sets the, the bar just a little bit lower. I like this one a lot. I did the same search um, uh, with Twitter. And if you type in the hashtag winning life, you'll get lots of different things. Here's one here that says, I always feel like a winner when I can give my cashier the exact change, right? Winning life. That makes you feel really good. Or this next one that says, when the seat isn't empty next to you on your flight, that is a win. Now, it is. It feels like a win, doesn't it, when the seat is empty. Or this one, have all semester to do a report, but wait until the week that it's due to start. Hashtag winning life. I think I wrote that before Twitter was invented. Um, this is a good one. All right, we hid enough crazy to get a second date hashtag winning life and then there's this one eating spicy nachos drinking beer watching reruns of sex in the city alone on a monday night i can't decide if i'm winning life or seriously losing that one actually brings up an interesting point doesn't it because if we are going to be winning life, is there, if there's a way to win life, if there's a way to accumulate enough things or enough of the, the, uh, the items that you desire, if having enough wealth or having an empty seat on the flight, ne- uh, on the flight, you know, that you're taking the next week, if those things equal winning life, then there's probably a way to lose life as well. And losing life then is, is not having all of the things that is, are associated with having this triumphant life. And so oftentimes we deal with both of these extremes, this feeling of like, I have achieved, and so I've somehow won in my life, I've achieved this victorious life, or I have failed, and my life is now a failure. And we associate and attach our value and our significance to those things. Let me give you another just little example. 
When we lived in Austin especially, we, we, we found that this to be the case, that summer would come around, and our kids would get so excited about summer, and school was out, and they'd, they'd get on a bike, and they'd ride over to a neighbor's house to find their friends to play with, and they'd find out that the parents said, oh, actually, um, he's at camp this week. Like, oh, bummer, missed him. Well, what does he get back from camp? Well, he gets back from camp on Friday, but Saturday he actually goes to another camp. And then after that camp, he goes to another camp. And they'd find out that every kid that they would go to in the neighborhood, everybody was gone all summer. And, you know, our first feeling was frustration. Like, man, our kids are lonely. They don't have anybody to play with because everybody's at camp all summer. But what was the second feeling that we got? Was somehow like, maybe we're doing it wrong. Like, why isn't my kid out learning how to play basketball better? Or learning about science? Or learning about art? Why isn't my kid doing all these things and you start to get kind of nervous? Like, oh, maybe maybe I'm losing at parenting because my children aren't doing this because they're not busy all summer. That's that feeling of knowing, okay, if I've achieved this particular thing, whether it's in sports or whether it's in parenting or whether it's in my work or whatever it is, then I'm feeling like I'm winning. And if I don't achieve, then there's this feeling of deep loss and a loss of significance or value. Well, the beautiful truth, the good news for us, is that what the Bible says is that Jesus has actually claimed a victory that gives us that value and that significance. That we don't have to go searching for it, that we don't have to accumulate a big pile of money, that we don't have to work ourselves 24-7 in order to have this winning life, and that we don't feel like losers or that we aren't losers when we have not done those things. Jesus has actually claimed a victory for us. He has won the greatest victory of all over sin and death and hell. And he has done that decisively. And because of that, we don't have to win. We don't have to feel like we have to achieve this winning life in order to have significance. All right, let's look at this passage again in Colossians. And we read uh, a few verses. I'm going to really focus here on this last verse. Verse 15, I want you to hear this again. He, being Jesus disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him what paul tells us is that jesus disarmed the rulers and the authorities that's the first thing that we hear in that verse so let's first talk about who are those rulers and authorities well, certainly there were rulers and authorities, um, you know, as we read the crucifixion accounts, we have both Jewish and Roman rulers who are putting Jesus to death, who are making these decrees and who are executing Jesus. But what Paul is talking about, I think, is actually something bigger, something deeper than that. Whenever Paul uses this language, and he's used it a couple of times already in Colossians, he's talking about spiritual forces. Spiritual forces at work in the universe that are against God and against his son and against his people. And so when Paul says rulers and authorities, he's talking about the spiritual forces of darkness, of wickedness, sin and death and hell and Satan who are against God and against his anointed, against Jesus. And when Paul says that Jesus has disarmed these rulers and authorities, that's who he's talking about. That's who he's disarmed. And that word disarmed is a really fascinating one. It's not used a lot in in the New Testament, but when it is used, it actually means to, to kind of strip off, to take something off. Paul will use that actually in the next chapter when he says that Christians are supposed to take off the old self and put on the new self. It's a stripping away. What Paul is saying is that what Jesus has done on the cross is that he has stripped the spiritual forces against him and against us. He has stripped them of all their authority. 
He has stripped them of their power. He has stripped them of their potency. He has stripped them of their importance. He has stripped them of any kind of power they have against him and against us. That is what Jesus has done on the cross. Now, I hope you see the deep irony here. Do you remember what Robert read earlier? That Jesus, as he's brought up to trial, that the Roman soldiers come and they strip him of his clothes. And they put a fake robe on him. And they put a fake crown on his head. And they're not only literally stripping him of his clothing, but they are trying everything that they can do to strip him of his dignity. They spit on him. They beat him. They whip him. And they are trying to strip him of any importance, of any power, of any authority. They put this mocking sign above his cross that says, the king of the Jews. Ha 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 ha. Doesn't look much like a king, does he? That is the attempt to strip Jesus of everything that he has claimed to be in his whole life. And what Paul says is so amazing is that that's actually what Jesus is doing to do exactly the opposite thing. (laughs) To strip the rulers and the authorities, the spiritual forces of wickedness against him, to strip them of all their power. As Jesus hangs there, beaten, stripped of his clothing, the attempt was to take away all of his potency, all of his power. What actually happened was just the opposite. That's what Jesus was using to strip away all of their power, all of their authority. The next thing we read in this is that he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Triumphing over these rulers, these authorities. This is a great word actually in the Bible. That word triumph really refers usually to um, a victory parade. In the Roman world, if there was a victory by a, by a general, they would be given access to come back into the city and they'd lead this victory parade through the city. And everybody would join in and they'd celebrate the victory of this Roman general. And they usually would bring with them their army kind of behind them. And then they'd bring prisoners in chains walking behind them. And so everybody got to look down and see, here's the victorious general marching through the city with his captors in tow. Again, we read in Matthew 20... Of Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem, the city of David, the king's city, where where the throne of Jerusalem was, coming in and people saying, it's the king, he's here. The Messiah, the son of David, he's here, he has come. We'll put our robes on the ground, we'll put branches on the ground so that we show honor and deference to him. They're shouting, Hosanna, the king saves, praise the Lord, praise the one who comes in his name. And then six chapters later, Those same people are shouting, crucify him. The amazing irony is there again. We see this glory in Matthew 20 of this victory parade. But what Jesus is doing (laughs) is his victory parade actually comes a little bit later. They strip him of his robe. They beat him. They whip him. They put the crown of thorns on his head. And then they send him off on this march. First carrying his cross and then someone else coming in to carry it. Marching to the hill of crucifixion where he will go and he will die. It's supposed to be his death march. It's supposed to be the parade of shame. It's supposed to be the march toward the end and the loss. But what Paul says is that's his victory parade. That is Jesus' victory parade where he is leading his people and he is leading even the captives behind him. He's triumphing. 
He says also that he has done so and in doing so has put these rulers and these authorities to open shame. Crucifixion was a very public event. It was very public and people would hang there literally for days. They would come and they'd hang so everybody could walk by and laugh at them, spit at them. Mock them like they did to Jesus. All of the, all of the people would come by and it said, even these soldiers would say, the soldiers and the Jewish leaders said the same thing. If you're really God, if you're really God, come on down. If you're really the Messiah, do something about this. He was supposed to be put to open public shame. But what does Paul tell us here? It's his moment of victory. It's his moment of victory where he is putting to shame all of the spiritual forces that are against him and against us. Friends, when we look at the cross, what was meant to be Jesus' moment of, of defeat, what was meant to be the parade of defeat for him, what was meant to be the stripping him of all of his power and potency and importance is actually just the opposite. It is the moment of victory for him. It is the parade of victory where he puts to death sin And death itself, where he puts to death all of the power of everything that is against him. And friends, if we are united to Jesus, he puts that to death of the powers against us as well. Paul says here that this record of wrongs that could stand against us, he nails it to his cross. It's there, that died with him, nailed to the cross. There's no condemnation, Paul says in Romans, for those who are in Christ. And it's because of the victory of the cross that we have victory in him as well. Somebody say amen. That's good stuff. Yeah. Listen, there's there's a really important spiritual truth here that hopefully you've picked up on, right? And it's that if we are united to Jesus by faith, that means that he has won victorious over any of our spiritual enemies. That he has actually put to death the record of wrongs against us. That he has put to death any claim that the spiritual forces of evil have on us. He has put to death any claim that our enemy has on us. That we are free from those things. That we actually have victory, spiritual victory with him because of his crucifixion. That is the great spiritual truth. If you have, if you're unfamiliar with Christianity, that's really at the heart of it. Jesus has won a victory for us that we can't win ourselves. We can't do those things on our own. He has done it for us, and that is the beautiful truth. And that beautiful spiritual truth also carries with it some practical implications. Some practical things that really matter in our life. We said this earlier, that because Jesus has won the victory for us, that we don't have to win in life, that we are actually freed from having to win in order to find significance or value in our lives. I want to talk about five really quick things that that means. Five quick things that that means that we don't have to win in our lives because Jesus has won the victory for us. The first is this, is that we can fight confidently. Now, I know that sounds kind of odd that I've said that Jesus has actually claimed a victory, that he's won a victory, and now I'm talking about we're having to fight. And this is the strange time that we live in, because we live between the time that Jesus has has won the decisive victory, but the the peace treaty is not fully signed. So we live between the times where that, that hope is sealed, where that work has been done, but the finalization of that victory is still yet to come. And so we live in a time where there really still is conflict. But here's the wonderful thing about it, is that we get to engage in that conflict knowing that the victory has already been won. Knowing that actually God has already done what we cannot do, and he's given us even the tools to fight. 
In Ephesians 6, we see that he's given us armor to put on, to engage in that fight. He has given us his mercy and his grace to be able to engage in that fight, both individually and together as a church. The church, in fact, is the one who is called to move forward in the world, to expand God's kingdom, to keep taking territory in proclaiming the beautiful grace of Christ and in serving one another. We are expanding the kingdom of God. We've been given that amazing privilege. So we can fight confidently knowing that Jesus is one. Here's the second one, is that we can actually serve happily. We can serve each other instead of trying to gain something over each other so that we might win. Uh, you, you read, you know, this interaction, this great interaction um, with uh, James and John in Matthew 20 where they send their mom in to ask Jesus like, hey, can my sons, you know, sit at your right hand and your left, which is um, just really a great move, I think, by James and John to send their mom in. Um, and Jesus, that was a joke, by the way, and Jesus, you know, says, you know, hey, it's great that you want to come and reign with me. It's great that you want to come and be with me, but I think you've got this whole thing upside down. Because I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. And if you want to reign with Jesus as a part of his victorious kingdom, the same is true for you and I. Is that he has called us not to be served, but to serve. See, oftentimes we want to be served so that we can be built up. So that we can feel like we have more significance, more value. If people are doing things for us, if we're able to kind of control the world around us, then we feel kind of like we've won life. And we're on top of everything. Jesus is saying, it's not like that. I've already achieved that. I've already won for you. I've already given you this victory. And so now you can actually go and serve one another. You can begin to lay down your lives for one another. You don't have to claim it back. I've given it to you. So now you can pour out yourselves with each other. Here's the third thing, is that we can also work now fully. Did you see, you know, what was said in that Instagram feed, right, which was work yourself 24-7, work your fingers to the bone so that you can have all the things in your life that you want and then you've won. Very oftentimes when I was a campus minister for four years, I worked at the University of Texas and I would, I would speak to college students all the time and so many times the conversation would end up around something of like, what am I going to do with my life? What, should, what major should I choose? Um, how am I going to end up, you know, making a living in life? Where's my place in the world? And more often than not, uh, the, the kids that I would deal with would, would all come with this one very particular paradigm. And the paradigm was this. I find something out there in the marketplace that's going to give me the things that I want to get out of life. And then I find something in me that can kind of match the needs of the marketplace. And I exploit those things so that I can get all of that list of things that I want out of life. You hear that? That's a, that's a market-driven kind of approach to how the, where the Lord will call me in my life. I exploit the world so that I can get all of those things that I want out of my life. And once I get those things, then I've won and I've achieved. The gospel paradigm is totally different. The gospel paradigm is this. Is that we get to look and say, who has God made me to be? Who is the unique person that he has created me to be? What are the gifts that he has given me? What are the desires that he has put in my heart? And where has he placed me? And then how can I steward those things for the benefit of his kingdom and for the benefit of my neighbor? 
What does it look like for me to take the things that God has given me and to use those to benefit his kingdom and to, and to love and to serve the people around me? Do you see how different those approaches are? The approach of stewardship versus the approach of exploitation. And because Jesus has won a victory for us on the cross, he's actually freed us now to engage in stewardship and to even work hard. To pour to, to love our work, to pour ourselves into it, to do wonderful things in the world without the feeling of having to achieve them so that we find significance. There is great freedom in our work in what God has done for us in claiming a victory already. Here's a fourth one. Because Jesus has won, because he has won a victory, we can also give generously. See, we don't have to count that big stack of money that, you know, once it gets to a certain level, then we've kind of won and we can feel good about ourselves. God has given us everything that we need. He has already claimed the victory for us, and so we can, have, we can be open-handed with, with our wealth. We can be open-handed with our time. We can give of those things generously because we believe that God has actually already claimed the victory for us. And then this one, finally, not only can we be open-handed with our money, but we can be open-handed with our plans. We can hold loosely the plans that we have for ourselves. I think this oftentimes can can be the the kind of hidden thing that that we don't oftentimes talk about, is that we kind of build up these plans, and a lot of them are really good. Here are the things that I'm going to do that are really great for for the world, that are really great for my family, that are really great for the kingdom of God. And what we do, though, is oftentimes we build all of our significance, all of our value on those plans. And once they're fulfilled and once we've done this great thing for God, then we feel like we've won. But the truth is, if we have more value in our plans being accomplished than we do in the victory of Jesus on the cross, if we find more value in that, then something is wrong in our hearts. And God is calling us actually to hold more tightly to the ways that he will call us, to the places that he will put us in this world, and to our uh, responsibility to steward those things well, and to hold more loosely to our own plans. I want to just finish with this question, and then I'm going to pray, and we're going to actually uh, just think about this question for a little bit. Which of these areas is the biggest struggle for you? Where are the places that you are tempted not to see the victory of Jesus in your life? Uh, is it in, is it in your work? Is it in your finances? Is it in the plans that you have made? Is it in, uh, even the fight against particular sins in your life, maybe repetitive ones? Where is the greatest struggle to see the victory of Christ? I'll pray for us and we'll spend a little bit of time reflecting on that question. Lord, thank you for your victory. Thank you for accomplishing something we could never accomplish on our own. But what great news this is. What beautiful, ironic, amazing news it is that, Lord, as you hung, as you hung in death, Lord, that we would actually find life. What a tremendous blessing. What a tremendous victory. Lord, we show us what it means to claim that victory to know that victory and to have it change our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.